Welcome to Bible Center Church, and thank you for joining us for this week's podcast. We pray that the Lord speaks to you as you hear from His Word today. If you take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Psalms, Psalms uh, 2, we're going to look at Psalm 2 in just a moment. And while you're turning there, I want to again just say what a joy it is to know uh, that the Word of God is declared with strength and power uh, when I'm away. I heard Pastor Mike did a fantastic job last week. I haven't heard the sermon yet. Several of you keep telling me that I need to listen to the sermon that he like debunked the waterfall theory, the waterfall myth. Uh, if you weren't here last week, don't worry about it. Uh, but I promise you the waterfall was scary, and I look forward to uh, checking out that message soon and getting him a hard time. I really don't get mad about that kind of stuff. I do get even, but I don't get mad about that stuff. So we'll have a, a, a good time later on. Just to reiterate something he said about the member meeting, I would encourage you, I ask you to join us for the member meeting next Sunday night. Even if you're not a member, but you're thinking about becoming a member of Bible Center, you know, commitment is one of those things that in our world, we want to hold extra high because it seems the world holds it so low. And so membership is a really big deal to me. I'll be preaching on it later on in the fall uh, where we find out church membership in the Bible. But if you're a member, I hope you'll be here, unless, of course, you've already scheduled uh, the condo and you'll be away. We totally understand that. Uh, but if you're not yet a member, join us. I'll be sharing my heart about what I believe is going well at Bible Center, what we can be excited about and thankful for, and also some things that we've got on the horizon for the coming year, things our, the elders and I have been working on. So I hope you'll be here uh, next Sunday night at 6 o'clock. We're in the middle of a series, or we're starting a series, Summer in the Psalms. Today, we're going to launch that series. I'm excited for three reasons. One, the Psalms is one of those books that we don't read as much as it reads us. There's other places in the Bible that are filled with information and we read and we study, but the Psalms is one of those books that when you open it, it kind of reads your own soul, your own fears, my own anxieties, my own questions, my doubts. They all just kind of rise to the surface. And so I think it's gonna be healthy for our church. I've sensed the Holy Spirit leading me back to the book of Psalms for this summer. Another reason I'm excited or I think it's good for our church is because of all the pain that's going on around us in the world. Of course, we saw the news this week about the 12 who lost their life tragically in Virginia. I heard yesterday, I was down in Boone County, I heard about a young man, I don't think it was on the news, but uh, there's been several young folks who've passed away in the last couple of weeks in Southern West Virginia, just tragic stuff. And so I believe the Holy Spirit's calling us back to a book that can give us some hope and help us to make sense of some of the realities that we experience every single day. But the third reason is there's a lot of pain inside of our church right now, a lot of sickness, uh, a lot of funerals, a lot of cancer. And so I hope that you'll draw near this summer when you're home. If you're away on vacation, I encourage you to tune in. Let's dig deeply in the Psalms together because I think it'll be helpful to us all. Psalm 2 is where we're going to launch this morning, and the title of my message is Praying with Jesus in Mind. Praying with Jesus in Mind. And so in the next few minutes, I'm going to do three things. I'm going to read Psalm 2, I'm going to explain Psalm 2, and then I'm going to give you three applications that you can take away to apply Psalm 2 to your life. So I'm going to read it, explain it, and give you three applications. So let's go ahead and dive in together. Please stand with me out of respect for the Bible, Psalm 2 starting in verse one. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? 
The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss the son or he will be angry and your way will lead to destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. As we jump in, here's what I want you to know this morning at the beginning of the message. You have your outline in your bulletin. It's also on the app. First statement is this. Above all else, Psalms is our prayer book. Above all else, Psalms is our prayer book. Going back to review a little bit from last summer when I covered Psalm 1, every psalm is a personal trainer for prayer. Every psalm is a personal trainer for prayer. Jesus prayed the psalms. The apostles, the early church leaders prayed the psalms. The early church, hundreds, over thousands of years ago, prayed the psalms. And over 140 times in the New Testament, psalms are quoted. The psalms are a personal trainer for prayer. If psalms is a garden of prayer, psalms 1 and 2 are the gate If it's a garden, then Psalm 1 and 2 are the gate. Think of the Psalms in this way. There's 150 Psalms, and sometimes we say there's 150 prayers. The Psalms were intended to be prayed. Occasionally, there were some of them were put to music, and so the prayers were sung, but ultimately, it's a prayer book. But sometimes I'll say there's 150 prayers in the Psalms. Actually, that's not technically true. For you mathematicians, there's actually 148 prayers in the Psalms, but scholars believe the first two Psalms are like a gateway. They're an entryway. I like to think of them like the Arch of Triumph in Paris, overlooking the Champs-Élysées. I've never been there, but I hear it's beautiful. You've got these two pillars, and whether it be this arch or this gate or the gate to your garden or the gate to your yard, gates really do three things. They guide us. They tell us where to go. If you want to go into the yard or into the garden, the gate says, come in through this means, this way. Gates guard, they protect, usually accompanied by a fence. Gates also give glory. They make a big deal out of something, a bigger deal out of something that already is a big deal. So if you want to visit the Champs-Élysées, which by itself is beautiful in Paris, you walk through that or you see that, all of a sudden something that is a big deal becomes a bigger deal. And so scholars believe that God intentionally, through human means, put Psalm 1 and 2 at the beginning of the Psalms for us to walk through. And when we read Psalm 1 and when we read Psalm 2, we get a better picture of what the next 148 Psalms are all about. Eugene Peterson writes this, Psalms 1 and 2 are like pillars flanking the way into prayer. Prayer. 
They're a pair working together to put our feet on the path that goes from the non-praying world in which we are habitually distracted and intimidated into the praying world where we come to attention and practice adoration. So let's think about Psalm 1, what we talked about last year. Psalm 1 teaches us to pray with God's word in mind. Pray with God's word in mind. I've preached on Psalm 1 before about the importance of God's word and how it roots us and grounds us in life. But in context, the Holy Spirit gave us Psalm 1 to teach us to pray with God's word in mind. Jesus reiterated Psalm 1 when he said, let my words abide in you when you pray. So Psalm 1 is about the word. Psalm 2 teaches us to pray with Jesus in mind. Pray with Jesus in mind. Psalm 2 was often read at the coronation of the kings of Israel. And so there's some application to a human king, but there is no way Psalm 2 could apply just to a human king for multiple reasons. Verse 2 that we just read, and we're going to look in a minute, says Psalms 2 is about the Lord's anointed. The word anointed in Hebrew is the word Mashiach or Messiah. It's about the Lord's Messiah. And Jesus in the New Testament took Psalm 2 to the next level. He said, Psalm 2 is all about me because I am the Messiah. In John 4, 25 and 26, Jesus is talking to the woman at the well. In John 4, he says, the woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Now, if you like to go deeper and you like to study and take meticulous notes, you want to write down 2 Samuel 7. I'm not going to cover it, but it's more for a core class. But really, Psalm 2 fulfills the promise of 2 Samuel 7. All that to say this, the New Testament writers, the people who wrote the last half of the Bible, they loved Psalm 2. It's some debate, but it is the, either the second most or the third most quoted psalm in the New Testament. Throughout the New Testament, the writers would quote Psalm 2 at various points to point back to Jesus. So let's think about that gate again. Here's a chart showing Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. It's not in your notes. Uh, we'll probably throw it up on Facebook this afternoon. Psalm 1 teaches us that God's about God's written word. Psalms 2 teaches us about God's living word, Jesus. Psalm 1 teaches us to meditate on the scriptures. Psalm 2 teaches us to meditate on Jesus. Psalm 1 talks about a Bible-driven life. Psalm 2 talks about a Jesus-driven life. God gave us Psalm 1 because he knew we would be distracted when we pray. When we start to pray the other 148 Psalms, he knew we would get distracted. If you're like me, I get distracted when I pray. If I get down on my knees, I get distracted. If I'm in the car, I'm very distracted. I get distracted if I'm in the shower and I'm trying to pray, wherever. I get distracted easily. And so God gave us the Psalms so that we could learn to, to pray with some structure and some order to prevent us from being distracted. But God gave us Psalm 2 to, to remind us not to be bullied by the powers and kings of the world. We'll see in a minute that there's no power greater than the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. 
And so God knew we would need a reminder not to be bullied. Psalm 1 teaches us to deeply trust God's word. Psalm 2 teaches us to deeply trust God's son. And then Psalm 1 says, pray with a Bible in mind. Psalm 2 says, pray with Jesus in mind. So if we can keep these two things in our mind as we go through the 148 Psalms over the course of our lifetime, we'll be able to pray much more effectively. But today's sermon is about praying with Jesus in mind. Why? What benefit will we get by praying in light of Psalm 2 with Jesus in mind? What benefit will we get? Well, there's really three benefits, three applications. Number one, when we pray with Jesus in mind, we will pray calmly. We will pray calmly. Think about verses one through three. The narrator is the Holy Spirit. He begins with a question. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. Now, does that mean that the kings of the world are somehow being shackled or, or somehow punished by God in this life? Well, actually, the word chains and shackles could be translated harness or yoke. And essentially, these rulers are not complaining that somehow God is, being, uh, God is treating them unfairly. Many of them have it very, very good. Thankfully, we have world leaders, some of which love Jesus, follow Jesus. But you and I both know many of whom do not love the Lord. And everything about their life is in rejection to the gospel. And so here in verses one through three, God gives us a little insight of what's going on in their minds. They are not complaining that they have a hard life. They're complaining that they have an owner, or at least somebody would dare tell them they have an owner. They're, not, they're complaining that somebody would dare tell them their life is not their own. Their message is, my life is mine. My power is mine. And in Psalm 2, God's going to remind world leaders their power is not theirs. This is the kind of message that needs to be proclaimed in Washington and needs to be proclaimed in London or needs to be proclaimed in Peking. I'm proclaiming it in Charleston, West Virginia. Feel free to send the podcast wherever you would like. But world leaders are called to trust in God. These people, those who reject Christ and yet remain in power, command many of the world's armies. They direct advances of science. They run school systems. They preside over governments and they rule in the marketplace. And it can be very, very intimidating when someone of power who rejects Jesus we see them on the news. It can be intimidating to think that somehow we're going to be ineffective or that there's no way God can use us. Little old Christians, what impact can we make? Now, I used to love the news. I no longer watch the news. I get all of my news on Twitter, all of my news online on my phone. But this morning, just to feel this sermon, I ate breakfast listening to the news. I won't tell you which news outlets, but I flipped through a few of them, you know, the far, far right and the far, far left, and everybody's freaking out about something. Doesn't matter where you turn, everybody's freaking out about something. So I'm eating breakfast this morning just to kind of feel this sermon, and sure enough, like two minutes in, you're already like, oh my goodness, the world is coming to an end. And so it's easy to lose that calmness. What does God say? Psalm 2, verses 4 through 6. 
This is what he says. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. The Lord laughs. This is the only time in the Bible where we we get a picture of God the Father laughing. We know that he's full of joy, he's full of love, but he's laughing, but it's not funny. He's laughing, he's scoffing, he's mocking. Kind of to give you the picture, it would be kind of like this. Imagine if I decided to go into MMA. I decided to go be a world champion fighter. Now that's already funny. Why are you laughing? Why are you laughing? But if I decide I want to be an MMA fighter, right? And so I actually step in the ring. I go to Vegas. I step in the ring with an MMA fighter. This is what they're going to see of me when I step into the ring. That's what they're going to see, right? And they're going to laugh. They're going to, you're not allowed to laugh. They're allowed to laugh. They're going to laugh like, yeah, right. Like, who do you think you are? That's what God is saying here. God is saying all the powers that you read on the news, all the calamities, all the things that keep you and me up at night, God laughs at that. It's nothing to him. He is in charge. He is sovereign. What evidence do we have that God can have these characteristics, but also be loving? We don't like to think about these characteristics as much. I know I don't. You know, God is a judge. God is holy. God is righteous. God does not ever accept sin. He can't overlook sin. Now, we don't like to think about that view of God. And I'll tell you one of the reasons I don't often talk about it or my heart just naturally wants to pull away from it. Growing up, I felt like that's all I ever heard about. Like at every sermon, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, everything that was connected to the church, I heard about like how much God is mad at me and if I messed up one time, and that's all I heard about. And so I even see in my own heart a natural tendency to want to emphasize the patience of God and the love of God. Because after all, the Bible says the goodness of God leads us to repentance. So I'm just kind of letting you in the window of my soul for just a minute, letting you know how I think. But it's important as we go verse by verse through chapters like Psalm 2 that we not shy away from the truth. And the truth is that God, yes, he's loving, but he is holy. And he does not trifle with sin. How do you know that? The best picture that we have in world history that God can be both loving and righteous was on a hill outside of Jerusalem, a hill outside of Zion. And that's why verse six, the psalmist says, I have established my king on a hill in Zion. Literally, Jesus Christ died on a cross on a hill in Zion. He was buried inside a hill in Zion in Jerusalem. And he rose again outside of a hill and ascended up into heaven in Zion. Jesus Christ on the cross is the greatest evidence that God can both punish sin and forgive sin at the same time. The cross fulfills Psalm 2.6. In the late third century and early fourth century, there was a Roman emperor named Diocletian. Has anybody heard of Diocletian? Two or three of you who love history. Yeah. He, he, he erected two monuments to himself, of course. And these monuments read this. Diocletian, he's, this is his full name. Diocletian, Jovian, Maximum, Herculeus, Caesarus, Augusti. For having extended the Roman Empire in the East and the West, and for having extinguished the name of Christians. 
There's a second monument that again bears his name and says that he everywhere abolished the superstition of Christ. He bragged in his lifetime that he would extinguish Christianity. And if you know things about world history, the end of the third and the early fourth century is when Christianity began to explode. And you can just picture, not very many of you know the name of Diocletian, but billions in the world today and throughout the last 2,000 years, billions know the name of Jesus. And so when we get a glimpse of Jesus in this way, we can pray calmly. We can be like, Lord, I know you're in charge. Life feels like it is out of control, but in a way I don't understand, you're sovereign and I can be calm. This view of Jesus teaches us to pray calmly. Number two, this view of Jesus teaches us to pray courageously courageously. So we have the the passive element of calmness, now the active element of courage. Verse seven, notice what the Holy Spirit writes. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. If you go back up to verse seven, it says, you are my son. Today I have become your father. A little history here would be helpful to help us understand this. There are some versions of Christianity. I wouldn't call it real Christianity, but there's versions of Christianity that take verses like verse seven and they teach that Jesus wasn't God in eternity past. Well, there's like, you know, hundreds of other places in the Bible that teach us Jesus is God and he's existed in eternity past. But if you read verse seven all alone, without reading any of the other verses, you would think, well, Jesus, he wasn't God. And when he was born or at the cross or at his resurrection, he became the son of God. That's not at all what this is teaching. In the ancient world, even outside of Israel, in the ancient world, when you became a king, it was declared of the gods. The priest or priestess of the temple would say, you became a son of the gods, O king. You became a son or daughter of the gods and goddesses. Even in Israel, it was declared that the kings of Israel in some way became a symbolic son of Jehovah or of Yahweh. It's not teaching here that Jesus became God, but it's teaching us that Jesus was honored in a unique way in a moment you're gonna see when and where. If you're taking notes, there's a couple of places that remind us that Jesus was already the son of God uh, in eternity past. John 16 through 18 teaches us that for eternity, God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit were all equally God. If you remember at his birth, God declared his glory over baby Jesus through the angels, Luke chapter two. When Jesus was baptized, remember the voice from heaven, or if you're new to church, you you gotta read it in the New Testament. You You see, God the Father declared, this is my son at his baptism. God declared, this is my son up on a mountain in Matthew chapter 17. So there's multiple places where God declared this, but this this psalmist would say is the most important. When did this happen? Now we're into the deep end of the pool for a minute. I don't want to lose you, uh, but I'm going to ask you to, to look with me at Acts 13, 
verses 30 through 34. The Bible makes a much better commentary than I do. So the Bible is going to interpret the Bible. Acts 13.30 says this, but God raised Jesus from the dead. And for many days, he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news, what God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, notice it again, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, this is still the Bible, today I have become your father. God raised him from the dead so that he will never be subject to decay. I've said all that to say this. At the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus didn't become the son of God, but he was uniquely declared to be the son of God. At the resurrection, Jesus didn't become the son of God, but he was uniquely declared to be the son of God in a way like never before. Let me put it in practical uh, illustration. Let's say you've got a friend who claims to be God. And you're like, well, you know, this friend, he, uh, he claims to be God, but he's a pretty good person. He does some good stuff. But you know, I'm not so sure. He feeds the poor, serves people, heals people who are sick, claims to be God. Ah, I'm not so sure. He's a nice guy. But let's say this friend, you see him die and you see him buried. I mean, not like passed out, like buried. And you see him rise from the grave. He's the third day and he's really alive. Do you think you would be a little more inclined to believe that that friend is at least from God than you were before he rose from the grave? Absolutely. And that's all the psalmist is saying here. Jesus Christ's resurrection declares him uniquely to have the authority over death, hell, and the grave. Verse eight. In verse eight, God the Father says this to God the Son. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. God the Father gives Jesus all authority over all the nations, I had a friend growing up. His dad is a pastor here in Charleston, still is a pastor, a great guy. And he, every time I go over to his house, my friend's, my friend's dad, who was a pastor, would say, Jesus rules over West Virginia. Jesus rules over Charleston. Jesus rules over the United States. And I'd kind of be thinking to myself, like, it sure doesn't feel like it. Uh, have you seen the news lately? Like, it doesn't feel like Jesus rules. But according to these verses, right now, Jesus is sovereign over West Virginia. Jesus is sovereign over Charleston. There's not a stray molecule in the universe right now outside of the sovereignty of Jesus Christ. The problem is not everybody recognizes it yet, but there's coming a day everybody will. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and wages war. His eyes are like a blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies in heaven were following him, 
riding on white horses dressed in fine linen, white and clean. And coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword that with it to strike down the nations. And now he's going to quote, John's going to quote Psalm 2. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh is a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Let me tell you what this verse did for me this week. I'm preparing to preach to you and I'm evaluating my own prayers and the size of my own prayers. And God, would you let this happen? And God, would you let that happen? When you read these verses, all of a sudden your prayers go up like 10 notches. You're like, well, God, I'm not sure if you can do this. All of a sudden, now we pray with courage. God, you can do this. Are you praying global size prayers? Are you praying Jesus sized prayers? If we read this, we can listen to the writer of Hebrews when he says, come to God's throne boldly, not arrogantly, but boldly. I'm connected to that guy. He is my savior. We can pray with calmness and we can pray with courage. Number three, Psalm two does one final thing for our hearts, if we can really grasp it. And that is it teaches us to pray compassionately. Psalm two teaches us to pray compassionately. Look with me, verses 10 through 12. He's just said that when Jesus comes, he's gonna knock the teeth out of the nations. So he said some pretty bold things, right? When you get to verse 10, the Holy Spirit is the narrator and the Holy Spirit's gonna speak a word now to the nations. He's gonna say some things to the people of the world. What do you think he's gonna say? Let's look, verse 10. Therefore, you kings, you finally are gonna get what you deserve. Ha, ha, ha. Is that what verse 10 says? No. Verse 10, he speaks with compassion. Listen to the compassion of the Holy Spirit in verse 10. He says, because of everything he's already written, therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss the son or he will be angry and your way will lead to destruction. Don't you see? His wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed, I want you to be blessed, are all who take refuge in him. Now, verse 12, there's a question. You say, how could it be compassionate when he says God's anger will flare up in a moment? If you've been in church for a few years, you've probably heard somebody teach about how God is slow to anger, Exodus 34. So how could God be slow to anger, Exodus 34, and in this verse, his wrath flare up in a moment? If you've been on a university campus, this is one of the verses that someone will try to use to say there's a contradiction in the Bible. It says in Exodus 34, God is slow to anger, but here it says God's wrath flares up in a minute. See, there's a contradiction. Why do you believe the Bible? I hope somebody clips that part of the video out. I'm not believing that. I'm telling you what other people say. Well, here's a good way to illustrate it. Exodus 34 is from God's perspective. It's actually God talking. I am slow to anger. Psalm 2 is written from the human perspective. For the human perspective, it will seem like God's anger flares up in a moment. Have you ever tried to scare your kids? 
our, our 16-year-old Katie, I, I love to creep down the hallway. You know, she's reading her book, she's studying, especially for backs to me. I like to creep, this is really bad. I like to creep down the hallway and like sneak in her room when she's got her headphones on and just scare the living eebie out of her. I love to do that, right? She loves to do it to me too. It's just something we do. From my perspective, it might take me five minutes to creep down the hallway and slowly make sure she doesn't see me coming. But from her perspective, it happens all at once. The same with a tiger. A tiger's going after its prey. From the tiger's perspective, it might take an hour. But from the prey's perspective, it happens like that. And what God is saying here is this. I'm patient. I want you to come to Jesus. I want your neighbors to come to Jesus. I want your coworkers to come to Jesus. We pray all the time. Even so, come, Lord Jesus, come back. But he tells us in his word, the reason he doesn't come back is because he's being patient. You see, the moment he comes back, there's no more chances. There's no more second chances. And so God is slow to anger and we sin against him and he grants us mercy and we sin against him and we resist him and he begs us one more time to return. But there's coming a day the patience will run out and it will seem to the world as though the anger and judgment of God happened like that from the world's perspective. And so the Holy Spirit writes and he says, serve the Lord with fear. Celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss the sun. This seems gross to us. Kiss the sun. This is a, a term of royalty. If we lived in a, a different world, different time, we would understand. The only safe place from the wrath of God is in God himself. Take refuge in God. There's no refuge from God. There is only refuge in God. I'll ask before we close, how many of you have seen the movie Captain Phillips? Anybody seen Captain Phillips? It's one of my favorite movies. I like it. You got the Smalley Pirates. They come on the ship. They go out into the lifeboat. They're trying to work on a deal, you know, with the U.S. Navy. And there's that scene, and whether how accurate it is, I don't know, but I love the movie. There's that scene where Tom Hanks, he knows the entire United States Navy, all the power of the Navy is focused on that little boat, Right? And Tom Hanks is in that boat and he's tied up. And what's he doing? He's bleeding. And he's begging the Somali pirates, listen, you do not want to do this. You are not going to get out of here alive unless you surrender. You do not want to do this. You are going to lose. He doesn't look at the pirates and say, ah, oh, the Navy's outside. You're going to die. No, he begs them. He says, look, all the power of the world is coming down on this boat. You need to change your mind and surrender. That's what God invites us to do as Christians. That's why I am so passionate, and I want to be passionate about this for years to come. That's why when we fight about stuff online, and we argue about stuff on social media, and we pick at each other, and we write things that we would never say in public, I get so aggravated because the world sees that. The world knows what we're doing, and they don't want anything part and part of that. The way we are called to this world is to be called to compassion, to love them. Yes, we can have internal discussions and debates till the cows come home, but let us love the world in the eyes of the world. Dylan Roof opened fire at a Bible study in Charleston, South Carolina about four years ago. Sarah and I were down there last weekend for a wedding. And I was reminded that less than 48 hours 
after the shooting where nine African-Americans lost their lives. He appeared in court and the judge did something I don't think I've ever heard about before. The judge allowed family members to speak directly to Dylan. Nadine Collier, the daughter of one of the victims, Ethel Lance, had tears running down her cheeks and she said this to her mother's murderer. You took something from me, Dylan, something very precious. I will never be able to talk to my mom again. I'll never be able to hold my mom again. But I forgive you. And may God have mercy on your soul. Anthony Thompson, the husband of victim Mary Thompson, said, I forgive you, but let me take this opportunity to tell you something important. Dylan, repent. Repent, confess, and give your life to the one who matters most, Jesus Christ, because only Jesus can change you from the inside out. An atheist commented on that article a few minutes later and said that example is the best advertisement he had ever seen for Christianity anywhere in the world. Us showing compassion to somebody who didn't deserve it. You know, the greatest advertisement in Charleston won't be the commercials we do. It won't be the Facebook videos we do or the ads we put out or the newspaper. The greatest advertisement that Jesus is alive in Charleston is the compassion we show to one another and the compassion we show to a lost and dying world. This summer, I want to encourage you to do this. Pray calmly. God's got this. He may choose to answer your prayers on this side of heaven, and he may choose to answer them on the other. But he will answer prayer calmly. Number two, pray with courage. Pray with courage. And number three, pray with compassion. And as we go through the 148 Psalms, not the all this summer, but throughout our lifetime, may God help us to remember it's all about Jesus. Once again, thank you for joining us this week. We look forward to serving you in next week's podcast, along with our weekend services every Sunday morning at 9 and 11 a.m.